Hi, this is Mags Tanev and welcome to Brain Spike Back. The podcast that explores all things psychology, technology and societies. In this episode, I dive deep into the therapeutic value of the ayahuasca plant medicine with a trained ayahuasquera. We spoke about her own experiences training to administer the medicine, why people choose to take ayahuasca and how they should prepare for ceremonies, and the dangers of the growth of illegitimate retreats. Hope you enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Publicize, a digital PR company that grows businesses' online presence. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brainspike Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co bbb. My guest today is a trained ayahuasquera and founder and CEO of Afterlife Coaching, a platform that aims to assist seekers in the integration of powerful plant medicines. She pulls medicine in places like Peru and Costa Rica, leads master plant dietas, both in person and remotely, and offers spiritual life coaching to people almost daily. Her name is Kat Courtney. Kat, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. That's great. So I'd like to first off start by asking you about how you first found the plant medicine and um, what brought you to it in the first place. Well, I mean, what brought me to plant medicine is really what most people go through in terms of wanting healing. So it was 15 years ago, actually, that I first heard the word ayahuasca, and I had that calling that so many of us have when we first become aware of it. So I went to the Amazon jungle for my first experience with plant medicine and um, really seeking help specifically with the feeling of being bipolar. Uh, I had a diagnosis with that. I was dealing with a lot of issues also with alcohol, recreational drugs, and I was very intensely bulimic. So all of those things led me on a journey to seek this process and to see if it could actually help me. Wow. And after those first few ceremonies, what kind of benefits did you notice that you were then able to integrate into your life afterwards? Yeah, the first magical thing that happened, honestly, and anybody who's been through that dark place totally gets this, is I had the first sense that I could feel better. I had kind of been diagnosed by the Western world of being broken, kind of mentally and emotionally, and sort of figured that would be my entire journey with life. And my first few ceremonies with ayahuasca, I actually felt into my potentiality for joy, for healing, that why not me? So yeah, that's really interesting. And I feel like that's the general trajectory that a lot of people take when starting to explore ayahuasca, you know, they go to a country like Peru or Colombia or Costa Rica and then do some ceremonies, but the vast majority of them will take those experiences and, and take them home and, you know, not kind of go back for, for ceremonies anywhere near as often as, as you did. Um, I want to know what it was that led you to then follow the path of training as an ayahuasquera and then, you know, helping other people on these journeys as well. Yeah, really good question. I mean, basically, it was that I just couldn't get around this sort of soulful nagging that I felt a calling to do it. And I confronted like all of these stories of self worth of like, why me? I can't do it. I, you know, I'm not indigenous, like all of these stories kept creating resistance. And yet, I would have dreams about it about the medicine, I felt so incredibly connected to ayahuasca as a spirit. And that commitment to her, that deep kind of intimate relationship that I was creating kept me going back until I finally accepted the fact that I felt like she was calling me. 
And once I felt it really was coming from, you know, spirit basically, and not my ego, then I just surrendered and magical things happened. You know, I met my teacher and everything just sort of fell in alignment. But uh, trust me, I fought it like crazy for a while because I was like, you know, a white girl from Montana in the U.S., what does she know about indigenous medicine? And <laughs> of course, that's why I had to train. So I had to learn. But it was just that deep calling. I couldn't get away from it. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. And could you tell me a little bit about that experience of going back to the Amazon and, and training with a teacher? What was it like to go back and kind of undertake this this different level of connecting with the plant medicine now that you were aiming to help other people with their experiences too? Well, just utterly terrifying, to be perfectly honest, because the responsibility that uh, that the facilitator carries, you know, it's really like very much I, I like making the parallel to this training is about becoming a spiritual doctor. And, you know, the lineage, the Shipibo Kanibo lineage that that I am blessed to be a part of, they told me basically a minimum of seven years commitment of working side by side with my a maestro to learn this process before you pour a single cup of medicine. For me, it ended up actually being 10 years. So just tremendous amount of discipline and commitment without even the promise of there being the end result of pouring medicine, which honestly I wasn't attached to because I was so afraid of it. That's why it took me 10 years to finally get there. And I trained, you know, both with indigenous maestros in the Shipibo tradition and also a, a Westerner who uh, was really invaluable to me because he's also from the same culture in terms of understanding what we deal with in this world. And of course, could speak fluent English and really help me to, to integrate and understand some of the energy work I was learning experientially with the, the indigenous teachers of mine, but not necessarily with uh, the understanding on a mental level that I really needed to, I needed to have it all. So, uh, it, and I'm, of course, I'm still a student of the medicine. I always will be, but it was a really terrifying experience to step into the potential responsibility of what it takes to do this work. Yeah, the shamans know that even just to pour your first cup of medicine, it took you 10 years of training. That's really fascinating to hear about. Um, so was that in, in Peru that you were training or did you did you go to different spots? Yeah, all over. I mean, it started in Peru and then the teacher that I met was based in the States, but we traveled like we did a lot of work in Central America. And basically, you know, I just traveled wherever the medicine was calling he and I. The training just involved doing the ceremony side by side with him, assisting in any way that I could and observing and watching and learning through every single experience and every single ceremony before I felt like I was strong enough and, and had a, enough of a foundation to start doing my own thing. That's amazing. Wow. So in terms of people that are feeling like they might want to, to try drinking the medicine for the first time, what kind of advice do you have for those people that feel like it's calling them, but they might be unsure as to whether or not it's the right time or how they should prepare? Good question. Yeah. You know, a lot of people wait for the right time in terms of like feeling like they don't have any fear or resistance. And at least in my personal experience, that doesn't really necessarily happen. Um, the first thing I advise is really, if you feel the calling, to know that um, the invitation is real. And for me, I feel like I know when somebody is ready when they can't get away from the invitation, right? Like ayahuasca can show up in all kinds of different ways. Um, maybe the people next to you at a restaurant start talking to that, so talking about it, or you get an invitation to a, a sit in a circle that a friend says is safe. Like it becomes obvious basically that it's divine timing. It's not about getting to a place of feeling like you're fearless because really this process is as 
exploring the unknown. And um, I have never got to the place where I'm completely fearless about the unknown. But I do trust myself and other people when you feel like there's a calling to do this, there's something there for you, then I say it's time to dive in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was definitely the case before my first ceremony. I think I'd been thinking about drinking ayahuasca here in Colombia for probably around a year since I had spoken to one of my good friends here about the experiences that she'd had and I'd been thinking about it quite a lot but I think like you said I was waiting for that point where I wasn't scared anymore and I think you wait long enough to realize that that actually never comes and what you know no matter the circumstances no matter how many times you drink you're always going to be nervous and apprehensive about what's ahead of you but it was definitely the case of kind of the circumstances being there which facilitated me drinking for the first time you know like quite a few of my really good friends were planning to go and do a ceremony somewhere reasonably close to the city at a time when I was free and I had the the time and the opportunity to prepare for it as well I mean I probably could have done it sooner but I also know exactly what you mean about just knowing when the time is right and the and the signs being there so let's get a little bit deeper into preparation for a ceremony in terms of uh, dieta I've read that you've completed nine master plant dietas today, including a nine-month dieta and a full-year deep dive. Can you tell us a little bit about what these master plant dietas entail and then how someone might look to prepare for their first ayahuasca ceremony in terms of uh, their diet? Yeah, I would love to because the, the master plant dietas are really the place where I would say the deepest transformation work has happened for myself personally and for a lot of people I've been blessed to work with in this space. So what it is essentially is all of us that are called to work with plant consciousness have the opportunity to do a diet or a dieta. It means that essentially you're, you're taking the steps to create a really clean, inviting container in your body and your energetic field to have a primary relationship for a period of time with a plant consciousness, you know, a powerful plant teacher. So uh, mine were extreme just because I've been apprenticing on the path. I was with Sage for a year. That's unusual. You know, typically if we do it in isolation, it's 10 days, two weeks maximum that, that you need to carve out in it. And you just eat a really strict diet. You're not eating any salt, sugar, spice, anything like that. You're just really preparing the body to invite in the spirit of the plant. And then you're, you're working with the plant usually via a tea. Uh, at least a couple of times a day, it really depends on the plant and how it integrates with your body. And then, you know, the practitioner that you're working with creates this safe container. And then ideally, like I'm trying to help people integrate the experiences as they're coming up too. So it's just an opportunity for massive transformation. Now the, the parallel to the master plant diets and just preparing for an ayahuasca ceremony is that you do the same preparation. So the preparation for any of this just really involves, like I said, having a really clean, bland diet. You don't want any sugar, salt, spice, beef, pork, alcohol, anything that either has a strong spirit itself or that creates a strong experience in the body. You want to have everything be super clean. The reason being, first of all, it's easier for your body to digest and take in whatever plant consciousness you're working with, but it also shows a level of effort that we're willing to take. I mean, this is a relationship, right? So we have to put forth some level of effort in order to receive. So I like to say we get what we give and the harder you prepare, the more serious and sacred that you take the whole experience, whether it's a diet or a ceremony, the more the plant is likely to give you in return um, for your hard work. And the least of which is that physically it's easier to work with the plant because a lot of them have contraindications with things like spicy food. It can be really uncomfortable if you don't follow the diet. 
Yeah, that's um, that's interesting. And I think there's definitely a lot of speculation as soon as you start going down that rabbit hole online of what can I eat, what can't I eat, kind of searching Reddit forums for how long people do the dieta before a ceremony. Some people say three days, some people say more than a month. It can get kind of confusing for a lot of people that haven't drank many times and aren't exactly sure what they should be doing. But I think just having that like foundational assumption that you need to give yourself to the medicine as a blank slate to receive the most foundational results. I think it's that's probably just the best one just to to have in mind rather than stressing over whether you can eat one certain ingredient over the over another. Agreed. And I actually I'll, I like to simplify it for people in terms of creating the foundation that I think all of us practitioners agree with is that the four most important things to have out of your system are beef, pork, alcohol, and any other mind altering substances, including like um, cannabis, you know, mushrooms is to really give all of that a break for at least three days. I ask people a week just because it creates a safe foundation. But you know, the rest of the stuff, salt, spice, etc. It's important, but it's not life or death. It's like, you know, you do your best with the, the lifestyle that you have. And I like your perspective is like the idea is not to stress over every ingredient, but to really do your best to eat a clean diet just to, to prep and, and to put forth the effort so that you can have a good experience. But it's okay if you have a little bit of salt or something, it's not going to make or break the experience. <laughs> yeah. And I think what you say about putting forth the effort obviously also really applies to integration after the ceremony as well. I think there is maybe a misconception around some people that drinking ayahuasca is going to be a quick fix. And after the ceremony, you're going to be, you know, have your problems immediately resolved or it's it's not going to take more work necessarily. But that's obviously not the case. On that note, what tips do you have for people to integrate the lessons that they learned during the ceremonies after they finish them? This is the big one that we work with. I personally feel like the biggest myth that is often purported about ayahuasca is that she's a cure-all. She doesn't cure anything. She helps us to become more conscious so that we can understand why it is that we're carrying toxicity, trauma, et cetera, and that we can essentially be our own healers. So what we do with it in the aftermath really is the, the foundation for the entire experience, actually, because, you know, a lot of people, what, what will occur is they'll have this really amazing experience full of insights and things that they just end up putting in the back burner that they don't actually integrate into their lives. So they don't get to, uh, to experience the, the profound, deep effects that even a single plant ceremony can offer. So my tips are really is, is first and foremost, it's super important to respect the fact that you're going to be blown open and potentially really tender, vulnerable in the aftermath. So if it's possible at all, it's ideal to have at least a day or two to not have to go back out into work world, you know, to quarantine, kind of like we are right now, um, and to, to respect your space and to let yourself have a little time to basically come back into your body. The more ceremonies you've done, the more this is important. If it's a single ceremony, a day is ideal. If you've done a cycle, which we consider three or four ceremonies in a week, um, you need at least a few days, in my mind, to, to really come back in and to start making sense. Because if you jump right back into your life, it's unlikely you're going to have the, the container, the, the time and the spaciousness to really make sense of what just occurred. It's very difficult, as you know, to really make sense of what's happening while you are in the ceremony itself. You know, your job then is to breathe and to flow. In the aftermath is when we connect the dots, but it takes, again, the effort to do so, to make it a priority and to do lots of self-care and to be really kind to yourself so the insights can illuminate. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you make about not jumping straight back into work life. And I think it's definitely something that I've struggled with living here because doing jahe ceremonies are so accessible. Um, living in Colombia, it is very easy just to work Monday to Friday, pop to a retreat center, drink on Friday and Saturday night, and then head back into the city on Sunday. And in hindsight, you know, it's not the ideal way to do it, especially when you've been kind of working all week and then going straight back into it on Monday morning. So I think the next time that I do do some ceremonies, it would be great to to plan out some time both before and after to allow for that preparation and integration. Because it, it's obviously the physical dieta and in terms of not consuming certain foods and and drugs and alcohol and stuff is very important. But I also feel like a digital media dieta is really necessary as well. And if I, I feel like if I'm just flooded with work and social media and, and news and whatever and whatever's going on day to day in my normal life, and then I try and get into that mindset that, that I want to be in before a ceremony, it, it's not really conducive to having the best results or the deepest experience, let's say. So yeah, no, that's definitely um, some great points that you make there. So you mentioned how some people might for example, want to only go and drink for one night where others, others might do a retreat with um, multiple ceremonies. How can people choose the right retreat for them and also avoid some of the perhaps less legitimate kind of centers that have arisen over the last few years as we've seen ayahuasca ceremonies grow in popularity with Westerners? Yeah, beautiful. Okay, so first of all, in terms of how deep to dive into the process, it's a very personal exploration, but it kind of has to do with what you want to get out of it. I mean, all of us that engage in this work, we, we also, in the preparation part, emphasize the, uh, the importance of intention, of knowing why it is that you want to have this experience. And so some people obviously, you know, come for deep physical healing. So if they have major things that are happening in their health and they feel like the medicine can help, that's likely going to take more than a single ceremony to really look at this as a healing process. Same with trauma and emotional things. We know we're dealing with things from childhood that we need some help releasing and, and processing. Then it, you know, just to know that this is a process it's going to take some time and to trust what you feel like you're able to, to handle out of the gate. I advise people, especially in the beginning, to try to do a full cycle, three ceremonies in a week or at least two in a weekend, that a single ceremony when you start is like going on a first date with the medicine, right? And I like to joke that uh, we don't necessarily go all the way on the first date. If you do, no judgment. Fantastic. <laughs> go all in. <laughs> it doesn't I like that. <laughs> happen that way. We, usually it gets a relationship, as you know, and so it usually takes a little bit of time to establish some trust in the medicine and yourself to handle it and the facilitator, the set and setting. I mean, it's all so foreign to us when we first start working with her that it's important to give yourself some time to develop that trust so that you can surrender more easily. It can't be forced. So for people starting out, I really, really recommend having at least a couple of ceremonies, not just diving into a single one. But then for those of us who have worked with the medicine and, and essentially need a tune-up and feel called to just a single ceremony, fantastic. It's beautiful if you have that opportunity. Of course, if you're going to travel, you know, if you're from Europe or the States or whatnot, and you're going to Peru or Colombia, then obviously you're going to want to do multiple ceremonies, making that effort to go that far. But some of us have access to ceremonies close to home and therefore we can use it for spring cleaning, basically, if that's what we're called to. Yeah, I love that. Using it for spring cleaning. I think that's definitely what it can feel like. And just on that note that you mentioned, you know, how many people now are traveling from from Europe and North America to, to South and Central American countries to drink the medicine. Um, how have you seen that kind of 
grow in popularity over recent years. You know, having first drank 15 years ago, uh, since then, I mean, I'm sure it was a lot less popular than it is now. What kind of trends and growth have you seen over that time? This is the aspect where my mind is literally blown and I continue just to be awed by it. I would never have guessed that such a powerful psychotropic indigenous medicine could find its way into the Western world in such a pervasive way. It's magic to me. When I started it, I mean, I was the weird girl in my tribe, of course, that was going into the Amazon and having these experiences. And it was only, you know, maybe five years in to my relationship with the medicine where I started realizing, oh my goodness, more and more people are becoming aware of this. And then the TV shows started popping up and it just got more and more pervasive, which which is a wonderful problem to have. I mean, it makes me so happy to see that so many people are awakening to the power of, of the medicine and being called to work with her at the same time. There's a lot of people who lack integrity and training who are stepping up and, and creating, well, situations that ought to be healing and end up being more traumatic. So we're growing, the, the space is growing at such a rapid rate that it's just chaotic in some ways. And it's it's important to me anyway to also maintain the integrity of the lineages that have existed for thousands of years in some cases, you know, Yahe and the Shipipo tribes and whatnot. I mean, th this has been in those cultures for thousands of years, yet, you know, sometimes somebody in their yoga studio is stepping up after having drank the medicine 10 times saying, I know how to do this, which it doesn't work that way. So there's just so, they're, they're growing pains. They're fantastic problems to have, but it's, it's really important for there to be voices of reason that say this needs to be done methodically with legitimate training. And that way we can keep the medicine in a safe container so people have healing experiences, not traumatic experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And within those communities that have been, you know, drinking the medicine for up to thousands of years, like you mentioned, is there any pushback against bringing it to people from outside of that world, from Western societies? To a certain extent, yes. But honestly, the experience that I've had um, pretty unequivocally is that they welcome any, you know, culture, any skin color, any background to do the work. If you do the actual training, if you come with the reverence of, of knowing that, you know, you have a calling, but that, you know, I knew nothing, literally nothing about the tradition. I just knew I was madly in love with the medicine. And that was welcomed. It's the people who don't think they need the foundation of the training, who, you know, kind of come from a place of, oh, I've drank the medicine, I get it. Those are the, the people that typically the indigenous cultures have pushed back against because it's not just that it's disrespectful to their culture, it's the fact that it's disrespectful to the medicine and to the people they might be pouring for. It's dangerous. The analogy that I make is that that would be like watching, you know, a, a show like Grey's Anatomy and thinking that you know how to do surgery. Like, trust me, I watched it. I got this to, to just drop medicine a few times and say, I know how to do this. It's, it's so esoteric. It's so complicated that, you know, of course, the indigenous tribes are very protective of their traditions that are in some ways being abused or disrespected. And that's where the pushback comes. Yeah, absolutely. And it is such a, a beautiful thing when you get to see people from those communities and, you know, even just kind of the music that they play during the ceremonies and the tra traditions that they have, the thought that those are being exploited or somehow kind of capitalized on for the wrong reasons is is really sad. But yeah, hopefully this kind of explosion in popularity doesn't result in too many of those kind of less legitimate treatment centers rocking up and, you know, so-called shamans that aren't actually shamans pouring the medicine. 
it's a pretty prevalent issue right now. I mean, there are retreat centers, some of the biggest ones actually, that are preying upon people's fears and giving them an experience that is not in any way safe or authentic. And what is happening, and I know this just because of the coaching practice that I do, I get to work with people every week that are integrating these experiences. What I'm finding is happening is that because there's a misunderstanding about the medicine and therefore the importance of the integration, people go have experiences that seem positive during the actual ceremonies themselves, and then they sink into depression or confusion in the aftermath because they weren't given the tools basically to integrate the awareness that this is a process. When we treat ayahuasca as a cure, we're doing a disservice to all these people that are going and expecting them to be fixed. And when they go home and they still have these issues, but now with a new consciousness, by the way, that they can work with differently. But if the expectation is like, if I'm an alcoholic, I'll go drink ayahuasca, I won't be an alcoholic anymore. It doesn't work that way. And it's sending people into deeper spaces of depression and confusion because there's just a lack of understanding or there's just outright lies about how it works. So that's one of my passions is to tell the truth about the process so that we're set up for success, that we understand what what this is and, and what it isn't. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, no, those are definitely some some very interesting tales that you have of people coming to you after ceremonies and, and, and being you being able to recognize that these have not been legitimate treatment centers that are giving people, like you said, the tools that they need to, to integrate afterwards. So yeah, this is, I think, really important information for anyone that is looking to try ayahuasca for the first time, the research that they need to do into making sure that they have the right retreat center for them and that they're going to a, a place that is trusted and respects the the proper processes and and lineages of this medicine is really important yes please please yes and that they respect the fact that the aftermath is really really important it's just as important as the ceremonies themselves if not more so yeah okay and just to finish off what are some of the the, the main lessons that you have learned from ayahuasca that you find yourself implementing and using every single day that you kind of didn't have access to before you started using the plant medicine? There are so many that, you know, I, I'm, I overflow with gratitude, but I will say that in our present day, you know, we, you and I right now are two weeks or so into the virus pandemic. And I am on the regular, so immensely grateful for how ayahuasca has taught me to stay centered with the energy of fear and change and chaos. You know, the, the medicine is a master teacher of showing us the, the way that it's, it's our mind that generates these expressions and, and feelings of resistance and fear to what is. And so since we are literally in a global pandemic, <laughs> the first in our generations, I am unbelievably grateful for having learned to look at the big picture, for breathing and being with it, for knowing that the only way out is through, for understanding fear the way that she has taught me. So I just feel like she's primed me for 15 years to be graceful in this storm because the ceremonies themselves can be pretty stormy and chaotic and difficult at times. And having worked with her in a way where I've, I've become graceful with that for myself, now I can do it when the world hands me curveballs too. Whereas typically we give our power away when something happens that we don't feel is in our control. It can be really scary, but Aya has taught me to trust it, to ride the wave, to look at the, not just the chaos in front of me, but where is it that we're going? Where is this a beautiful thing? Where's the, the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak? Um, so I never knew I would have to use it to this capacity, but I'm so glad I have it to tap into thanks to her. 
Yeah, I think there are a lot of uncertainties and a lot of struggles going on right now. But like you said, having had experiences with ayahuasca, I'm sure is helping a lot of people right now to kind of stay positive and, and look for that light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, well, I think that's that's a great place to end end the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. It was really a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Really deeply appreciate getting to speak about these important things, especially when we need it most. <laughs> Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. Visit their website if you want to find out more about their PR for growth packages, their free resources, or even schedule a call. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you're interested in more episodes from this series or any other Brains Bite Back podcasts, head to sociable.co or you could subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to hear what you thought of the show, so don't hesitate to tweet us at, at The Sociable. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and stay tuned for the final installment of the miniseries. Bye.